Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined in studio by Lauren Windsor, undercover journalist and the executive producer of The Undercurrent. She's also executive director of American Family Voices, and in the 2020 cycle, she was deputy communications director for Tom Steyer's presidential campaign. Lauren, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. So, Lauren, today I want to talk about the latest in the rogues gallery of GOP characters, as well as some of the work you're doing talking to factory town folks, the ex-urban folks, the rural folks, which I think is just hugely important and key. But first, I want to hear about what's new in the world of diving into the crazy swimming pool and undercover journalism in the Republican Party. So tell us a little bit, you know, just remind our folks, because you were with us back in September, remind us a little bit how you got started on this, because this is not what you call a normal job or a normal way to go about. Like if you say, oh, I have to go to work today and the job is to get someone like a Jim Jordan or a Ron Johnson to say something on camera. Like, that's not how most people go about their day. So give the folks just a reminder about how you got into this. Back to the very beginning, I launched a web show with the Young Turks in L.A. back in 2012. This is when I was an Occupy activist, and uh, I went around the country filming protests and showing up in an event and getting interviews with legislators, with advocates on the spot, you know, without any, you know, prior sort of outreach. And there was a small amount of undercover work. But I really stepped that up in 2020, given the stakes. You know, we're going through COVID. We're looking at having another term of Trump. And it just made sense after the election when so many of the fringe right wingers, and, and I wouldn't even say fringe anymore. It's like taken over the party. But even like the responsible Republicans, like, you know, Mike Lee, it turns out was, you know, trying to overturn the election throughout that entire period. But Given the you know threats to democracy that you could see brewing during the term of the Georgia Senate runoffs, it was at that point that I decided to go undercover to catch you know these Republicans, these extremist right wingers, basically plotting a coup. And so I caught Tommy Tuberville saying that the Senate was going to object to the Electoral College. David Perdue said he would also object, even though that wasn't uh, technically possible. Well, remember that just in that regard, David Perdue would no longer be in office and Tommy Tuberville had not yet been sworn in. Yes, he had not been sworn in. It kind of started a snowball effect. Once Tuberville said that he would challenge the Electoral College, 
then Josh Hawley came out of the woodwork to say, you know, you're not going to steal the thunder here. You're not even a senator yet. I'm going to challenge the Electoral College. And then Ted Cruz, of course, not one to be left in a corner, was like, no, 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 I'm going to challenge the Electoral College. So then, you know, you had everybody in on the circus. So you started doing this last year in 2021 in the wake of the insurrection. We talked to you in September when you'd already done a lot of work. So in the intervening time, as you've been in these events, take us inside the room. Do you find that the people that are attending these things, are there more or less of them? Do they seem more or less in touch with reality? (laughs) What's your sense of it? Do you think that they're sort of more on the crazy scale, less on the crazy scale? Does there seem to be any diminished enthusiasm? I do think that there is some diminished enthusiasm. So, for example, uh, I was recently in Georgia to talk to Jody Heist, who, you know, this is a continuation of, you know, my coverage of what's going on in Georgia, because, you know, with everything that transpired with Trump trying to get the Georgia legislators to overturn the election results there, you know, uh, he famously was on a call with Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, and asked him to find 11,780 votes. Raffensperger would not do that. And so now he's being primaried by Congressman Jody Heist, which is crazy because this is a, you know, obviously a step down for Heist to go from being a U.S. congressperson to secretary of state. But I asked him in a county breakfast if he were elected, if he would decertify the Georgia election results, which is not possible. But, you know, he said, well, you know, we've got to have the you know investigation first and, you know, we, we need to investigate everything. And then when the investigative, uh, you know, when the investigation yields the results, yes, then we can decertify. And I was like, so you are going to decertify if you're elected. And he's like, that's what I'm here to do. Right. But that's not a thing. Right. So like Heiss is he's cuckoo anyway. But do you get the sense when you're talking to him that like he knows what he's saying is bullshit and he feels like he needs to say it? Or do you think he believes it? Well, I think that's why, you know, when I asked the question, he initially responded like, well, we have to do the investigations because he knows that it's not possible. But I pinned him down on it to say like, well, but once the investigation shows, because I mean, we have the proof. He's like, well, yes, when once we've done the investigation, we have the proof. Yes, then we can decertify. And I should give you some more context here. Brian Kemp actually spoke before him. And if you know anything about what's going on in Georgia, Brian Kemp is being primaried by David Perdue. For the same reason that Raffensperger is being primaried by Heist. And so it was an odd dynamic there because nobody said anything to Kemp and all of the legislators in the Capitol are supporting Kemp. Jody Lott, one of the floor leaders in the state house there, who's a Kemp ally, I talked to her and posted the video of this. And she said that, oh, you know, all the lobbyists, all the corporations in the Capitol are supporting uh, Governor Kemp. Everyone's behind Governor Kemp. He's done a great job. And so, the crazy of the grassroots did not come out during Kemp's part of the program, but he left. And then when I made these remarks to Heist, I had a lot of people cheering and telling me like, oh, that was great. I'm so glad you said that. So there was kindling there and you sort of dropped a match in it Yeah, after Kemp left and when Heist came up and it just went, Whoosh! which I think is interesting because it was always sort of a, I'm going to call this old fashioned tenet of politics, which is you sort of In a primary, you ran far enough to your base to secure it, but not so far that you couldn't come back to the middle in a general. Now, they just run as far to the crazy as they possibly can, because without it, they can't get to the general. But then in Georgia, I mean, it's not a red state. It's not a blue state. It is a purple state. But if if you're the guy running around like a Jody Heiss saying, we're going to overturn 2020, 
even in Georgia, there's going to be a lot of Republicans like that guy's crazy. Well, I think that was key to, you know, why those two Senate seats are blue is because people saw, you know, President Trump trying to overturn the election, the will of voters in Georgia, and they didn't like it. So why don't we listen to the clip that you got with Heiss and we'll discuss a little more. Just to piggyback on what he was saying, um, you know, I haven't really been involved in politics a lot, uh, but with this last election being stolen and everything, it just... You know, we have to do something to stop this from ever happening again. And so, you know, know, I know that decertifying our election wouldn't, like, change what happened. Like, we won't get Trump back and Biden won't leave. But, like, if you're in, would you support decertifying the election just to set the record straight? Because, I mean, we need the truth to be out there that, you know, Georgia is not a blue state. <laughs> it's a red state. Yeah, it, it sure yeah. is a red state. But so, like, if, if you're elected, will you decertify the Georgia results? Well, I mean, look, you, you first got to have the, the evidence of all that that's gone through, which means you need the judicial branch. I mean, there's a there's a lot to it. You can't just go in and say, I'm going to decertify. You've got you've to go through the process. But that's what I'm pushing for. Let's get through the process. Let's have transparency. And let's see what happened. And, and let's deal with it. You cannot fix what's wrong for the future and, and deal with the future and make changes if you don't know what happened in the past. Yes. And we have got to get to the bottom of this and see where all the breakdown was and fix it and then going forward. But, but you're committed to proving, like, like putting all the evidence out there, Absolutely. proving it, going through the process. Yeah, and when the process shows that the election was stolen, you're going to decertify this. Yeah, that's why I'm in this race. Thank you. We have Thank got, you. We have got to deal with what happened in this thing. And it's, it, it is extremely aggravating. I was talking to someone over here a while ago. Look, we don't even have judges yet that have been able to look, been willing to look at the that's evidence. Right. And that is so, uh, I, I, that is just, is beyond annoying. It is, it is dangerous for us not to deal with problems, systemic problems that we have in our system. We, we've got to have judges that will look at it, and we've got to have a legislature, thank goodness, that we, uh, that we do, who are willing to see, as they have seen, evidence of problems and make, it, make steps to correct those kinds of things. So... You know, Lauren, the one thing I take from listening to Heiss was that you prompted him and you got him rolling. But once you did, he took off on the, yes, there absolutely was fraud. Yes, we absolutely have to investigate it. He said, yeah, that's why I'm here. I think if he were asked again, he'd say, I'm here because Brad Raffensperger didn't do it. Not like I want to overturn it, but that doesn't matter. What he said was what he said. And then, you know, then they complain about the judges, right? When it was, the United States Supreme Court with three Trump appointees who said, get out of here. And then even with the January 6th committee said, no, you have to turn all this stuff over. So it's one of those things, you know, Republicans always said the judicial branch, you know, shouldn't legislate from the bench. But the truth is, is that they like judges when they do what they want. They don't when they don't. And maybe that's human nature. I don't know. But it seems that even still, even if someone believes that decertification isn't possible, that there's still an overwhelming belief that it was indeed stolen. Oh, for sure. I mean, it seems to me that it's pretty ingrained at this point. The right-wing media has done a really good job of whipping the frenzy. I would say, though, uh, you said earlier about he's there because of Raffensperger, not overturning the election or finding the votes. I asked him in a subsequent, like when we took a photo together, you know, I, I said, I wish you were there instead of Brad Raffensperger. You would have done the right thing, right? 
And he was like, yeah, we wouldn't be here right now. And so, I mean, it's clear, you know, that the reason I had asked that in particular was because he had declined in an interview with NPR to say whether or not he would have acted differently than Raffensperger. Well, and that goes back to the sort of what they say when they're with NPR or let me call it a, I'm going to, again, use air quotes, normal media outlet, as opposed to if they're on a Fox or OANN, or if they believe they're in a candid situation where no one is, in their mind, no one is listening. They don't want to say that thing on NPR because it's national public radio, right? The entire freaking country is going to be aware of it. But in a room in Georgia with activists, he'll tell you what you really believe. In fact, I think you said the same thing when you interviewed Glenn Youngkin last year during the Virginia gubernatorial race, where he's like, no, 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 I have to be soft on abortion because I need to keep Northern Virginia. But once I'm in office, like I'm all in. Yeah. All right. So let me turn to another one of your subjects. And this is a guy named John Eastman. I know Eastman from working and living in California and doing work in California politics for 10 years. And this was a guy who was always sort of the resident constitutional scholar, right? He was a law professor at Chapman University, which is a very well thought of school in Orange County. And he was always the one like if you needed the novel constitutional argument for or against something like that was his thing. That was his niche in California politics. Now he has exploded onto the scene where he had written this memo that basically said, correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren, Pence could overturn the election, that Pence had the authority to do so. This was a memo that got sent to the White House, was reviewed at the White House. He subsequently said, well, I just wrote it as a theory. I didn't think anybody would take it seriously. But then you got him on tape saying, no, I really do believe he could have done it. And so take us from that moment where you got him on tape, I believe, while you were out in California to where we have seen him progress now, because as I understand, it, the efforts he has are continuing to this day. They are. I mean, you would think that he would give up by now in trying to decertify. You would think that a lot of these people would. But I think, you know, he is much aggrieved after that last encounter. You know, he, he talks about being canceled and spikes being in his driveway. You know, he lost a position that he had at the University of Boulder. And, you know, he's facing a a lot of litigation, very high legal bills. He's running not a GoFundMe. It's like give, send, go or something. He's raised almost $200,000 for his legal efforts. But what had happened was the National Review Online interviewed him and he stepped away from the memo. He's like, oh, nobody took it seriously. We wrote it because we were asked to come up with something. And then he spoke at the Claremont Institute Gala where he's a fellow. And so you know, we were looking specifically for Eastman because of his role in writing that memo. And, you know, you buttered him up and he was just ready to rip. I was going to ask you, could he, he just couldn't help himself, could he? He couldn't. I mean, he was just like dying to vent about all of this. Like, oh, I'm a genius. You're right. I am a genius. <laughs> like, thank you for acknowledging my, you know, my en- brilliance, my enormous brain. And, um, there's like four videos. You know, the first video has 1.4 million views. And that's the one where he says that Pence didn't do it because he's an establishment guy. And we were on the phone with 300 legislators and they didn't do anything because they're spineless cowards. And each of the subsequent videos had lots of stuff packed in it. And you know that he clerked for Clarence Thomas. All right. Well, then it all makes sense. And it all comes full circle. I'm sure Mrs. Thomas had nothing to do with any of this. I'm sure they had zero communication. Right. 
particularly with uh, all the text flying back and forth between Mark Meadows, Mike Lee, Jenny Thomas, and they're all like, Eastman, Eastman, Eastman. You know, and uh, just for the listeners out there, I have a, an op-ed that just posted in the Salt Lake Tribune about Mike Lee and all of these texts. But Lauren, to your point about Lee, Lee was the one who pointed Eastman towards the White House and said, he's got an interesting legal theory. That's what he said to Meadows. And from that text to Meadows, to John Eastman being at the White House with this memo saying, Mike Pence can overturn the election. Now he's going and he's talking to these legislators, even to this day, he's threatening them and saying, if you're not going to do what's right, we'll find people who are. So bring us up to the present day, because that was a few months ago. So bring us up to his activities to the present day. Right. So we rehashed what happened in October. And I was not there in person for these last two videos that we released. But for whatever reason, there was just very little coverage of his attendance at these two events, one in Colorado in February, one in Wisconsin in March. And so I remember you know, people tag me all the time with like Eastman News because of that scoop from October. You know, that's like kind of my, I guess, signature story. And uh, I remember seeing the video of him talking to legislators in Wisconsin, like pressuring them to decertify Wisconsin's results. And that was a month ago. And I just remember at the time being kind of mind blown. I'm like, surely like, you know, this isn't my video. I wasn't there. I'm sure, you know, someone's going to report on this, pick it up. And nobody really picked it up. It didn't become a story, but I tweeted about it. And then I guess Will Staken over at ABC News came out with a story that there was actually like a private meeting before this like public meeting that the video was on. But there was no video embedded in the story. And so I'm saying, I'm like, how are you? You're going to report on the private meeting, but like, where's Eastman's remarks? So I went back and found the video and, you know, transcribed it and got it up. And I want to say it, I think it has like over 400,000 views just because. People are interested in what Eastman is continuing to do. And it was in the process of putting out the Wisconsin video that, you know, someone was like, well, he spoke in Colorado the month before that. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, why aren't local reporters like boosting this up nationally? But, you know, they're there for whatever the local story is and not really like keyed in on who Eastman is and why it's important. And so I tracked down the video of him speaking in Colorado. He spoke to a militia group in Colorado and you were talking about the activist judges. So in this clip that we released this morning, here's uh, what we found in Colorado. This is a question for John Eastman. And John, I wonder what happened to the case in Texas that should have been should have been a home run. So you're talking about the Texas uh, original action in the Supreme Court. Um, we have a cowardly Supreme Court. Um, we have cowardly and corrupt lower courts. I learned a couple months ago, actually last summer, from somebody that was a law clerk in the Third Circuit, that's Pennsylvania, um, that the chief judge there did not randomly assign those cases in Pennsylvania to a random panel as the law requires. He solicited the opinions of all the judges in advance and then picked the three Republicans who had said, we don't think the campaign committee has standing to raise the challenge on behalf of the legislature. And then that fed the narrative that even Trump's own judges were voting against them. Right? The level of corruption is stunning. Uh, at the Supreme Court, I think it was cowardice. I mean, you had my former boss, Clarence Thomas, and Sam Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, and that was it. I mean, where were the others? Um, to take up what was a blatant fraud. Uh, 
how extensive the fraud is. A lot of people look like Joe are you know, working hard to prove. Um, but I don't need the fraud. All I saw was the violations of the law. It was blatant and admitted. Um, and it should have been taken up, and it wasn't. So Texas, I thought, did a very credible job of making the case for why they had standing under existing president. Um, there was a, there was a uh, report that at the court conference, Chief Justice Roberts was yelling at the others and then said, we have to take this because uh, it's just it's Bush versus Gore. We have got to do this. And he screamed at them saying, it's not Bush versus Gore, they're burning down our cities. Right, and you don't think what happened this summer before the election had any tie to that cowardice. It was designed deliberately to make them cowards, and they succeeded. So, I mean, Lauren, we could do a whole podcast just on that two minutes. So there is the cowardice of a Supreme Court. Two of the three justices that Trump appointed refused to go along with it. Right? It's Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito. You know, they're off the deep end anyway. They're cowardice, right? There's cowardice, but at the end. Lauren, just to make sure everybody understands what the root cause of that cowardice was, it was black people in the streets. It always comes home to roost. Always, always, always. He speaks with such certitude. It sounds like that when he talked to National Review, or maybe even when he was at the White House, he didn't really believe this stuff. He's like, eh, I got this thing. I sent it to Lee. He's like, okay, great. We'll do it. And let's see what happens. Now it seems like he's internalized it. And so this is going on, you know, that was Colorado in February, February of 22, March of 22. He's in Wisconsin giving the Speaker of the State House a hard time. And so I believe his materials have been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. He tried to say they were privileged. A court said they're not. You got to turn them over. Let me switch gears to you have done so much of this and there has been so much of this. You mentioned the text between Mike Lee and Mark Meadows, the text between Chip Roy of Texas and Mark Meadows. Like, at what point do you think that whether or not it's a court or the January 6th committee itself is actually going to start using some of this stuff? Because it seems to me that the guy admitted it on camera. And yet, like, what's going to happen? I mean, he's at least could be tried for sedition, I assume, or some other thing. I'm certainly no lawyer, no, nothing but a jailhouse lawyer. But are you surprised that, like, nothing's happening? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe something is happening. I just don't see it. There are disbarment proceedings. There's an investigation in California opened up by the bar there. In terms of the January 6th committee, there was news that broke, I believe, last night that Eastman was refusing to turn over something like 34,000, 36,000 documents that he said were privileged. So now the January 6th committee is having to go through that. But it's also, I think, why he's on this tour is like now he has to like double down. He's like fully committed to it because. You know, he's got to raise the money to cover. I mean, I think he realizes that he's in really, really deep legal shit. Right. And let me just go back to one thing you said. He was also a fellow at the Claremont Institute. And the Claremont Institute should really be renamed the California Academy for Advanced Fascist Studies. I mean, they are a bad bunch of guys and gals. J.D. Vance gave a talk to them about a year ago where he said, that we must defend the American nation state, which again, America is not a nation state like in France, there are French and in Japan, there are Japanese In America, we're Americans, right? It doesn't fit. But he said, you know, if we can't push back on our political opponents then they must be destroyed, like that's the kind of attitude that a place like Claremont is like really pushing out into the political ether. 
it is, I think, rebranding what American conservatism is. It's really sort of a white ethno-nationalist, white Christian thing that is insidious in the GOP. They always use the sort of code words of like celebrating Western tradition and celebrating Western civilization. Well, and then there was that woman. I don't know if you saw the other day, Lauren, I don't know if she was in Georgia or Tennessee, where she's like, look, if you're Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish, you can keep going to church. But just understand it's a white Christian nation. You know, history has always shown that that always works out well. Yeah. All right. I want to step away from the work that you have been doing, which I think has been incredibly valuable and is very likely to be a big part of, I think, when John Eastman ultimately has to go before this panel, the January 6th panel, Lauren, I think your video will be a huge piece of it. But I want to talk about the craziness of the Republican Party. So when I grew up, the GOP was boring. And that was his stock and trade. It was not going to be wild-eyed radicals. Conservatism, even by its name, we should conserve, we should be slow, things should be incremental. Now it is the party of the John Eastmans of the world, the Donald Trumps of the world, and Tucker Carlson tanning people's balls. What do you think? Because to me, they are just flat-out freak shows. They're weird. And I'm not talking about individual Republican voters. I'm talking about the leaders of the party and the voices of the party like a Carlson and a Trump. You know, I was at a rally in Texas, in Conroe, Texas. You know, there was a guy who came up like carrying a cross and it was wearing a sign talking about Mike Pence was a traitor and needed to be hung. And our discourse in this country has really gotten to a point where that kind of thing is not immediately shut down, but celebrated. You know, when there's gallows that are hung at the Capitol to hang Mike Pence and Mike Pence is still carrying water for the guy who was cheering those people on. You know, there's a sickness that has overcome this party. And I'm really tired of the both sides-ism in the media talking about how, like, it's equally crazy on the left and the right. And it's actually, no, it's not. It's really objectively not. And I don't know if the media is not going to step up to the plate, how we ever correct that, because we've got to call a spade a spade. And I don't see it getting any better ahead of 2024, honestly. Well, no, because if Donald Trump runs, he'll be the nominee. And if he doesn't run, let's say there's 12 people that run, 11 of them will be going as far as they can to garner his endorsement and his praise and his people. You know, they'll say 2020 was stolen. We're seeing it this year. I don't know what the percentage is or the gross number is, but I would venture to say that the majority of Republicans running in primaries this year are either totally across the line on the big lie or tiptoe right up to it and do the whole, well, there's a lot of irregularities that we have to make sure of, blah, 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 blah. But even then that, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans, you know, I'm not a Republican anymore. I'm an independent, but there are a lot of Republicans like me that look at that and go, what? What? Between Tucker Carlson's weirdness. Weirdness? You mean that you don't tan your testicles? <laughs> well, it's a personal question. Um, but the point, the point is they created that and put it out on television. <laughs> like, what? What are you doing? And there are going to be a whole bunch of people who are like, I vote Republican, but what the bleep is going on over there? And I think it's compounded by the idea, you know, on a policy front, that you've got like a guy like Rick Scott from Florida wanting to raise taxes on half the country, you know, too many Republican leaders being 
initially pro-Putin and now sort of soft on Putin or or whatever. But like it seems to me that as we look forward to November, you know, to your point about the mainstream media, oh, it's going to be a blowout. You know, Biden's at 33. You know, Republicans are going to win 50 seats like that might happen. But we should not underestimate the idea that the Republican Party is insane. Its leaders are insane. Its candidates are insane and may scare the hell out of so many people that folks don't show up for them. Anybody who tells you they know how the election is going to turn out in 2022, how the midterms are going to go is totally full of shit. Because, I mean, we have so many crazy ass, like unknown variables here, you know, and just the ones that we know. We definitely know that, you know, we still got a pandemic. We know we got crazy ass Putin and maybe the war lasts until then. Maybe it doesn't. But, you know, inflation is likely to be around. Those are the things we know. Right. But what about the things that we don't know? And, you know, what is Trump going to do to insert himself into these races in a way that's like really suppresses his own vote? Because, I mean, that's what we saw in Georgia. And I'm confident that, you know, between Trump needing to exert his power in the party and Rick Scott's need to flip off Mitch McConnell and assert this tax raising agenda in a time of inflation. It is political malpractice if the Democrats aren't running ads like every day until the election saying that Senate Republicans, if they're in power, will raise your taxes and take away your Social Security and Medicare because it's absolutely true. And it's not even a secret. They're not hiding it. Mitch McConnell won't say it whatsoever. But Rick Scott is like the id of the Senate or something. It's like Mitch McConnell's like, shut up. Yeah, we all want those things. Don't say it. Right. You're not supposed to give away the game. Right. Well, and he put it on paper. He put it on paper. It's called Plan to Rescue America. He wants half of America who has no skin in the game to have more skin in the game. I'm sorry, Rick Scott, but, you know, the, the half of America that you think needs to pay more taxes has more than enough skin in the game. I think also, Lauren, back to, you know, Eastman and the Black Lives Matters protests of the summer of 2020. This also is, you know, those people aren't paying their fair share. Right. And I think that's really where Scott was trying to get to these people. Those people aren't paying their fair share. But because they were so ham handed and stupid about it, it's now an albatross that we're going to hang across his neck. And and if you all are listening, Lauren is actually a Democrat and call your Democratic leaders and tell them. Republicans want higher taxes and no Social Security and Medicare. Like, just say that a thousand times. Say it a thousand times a day. Okay. So speaking of folks who have skin in the game, Lauren, and who I think probably are cast as probably Republican, very conservative, let's talk about the work that you all are doing with working class Americans and what you're seeing and hearing out there. We've embarked on a messaging research project called Factory Towns. And so it's working class Americans that, you know, have seen jobs leave their towns, you know, erosion of benefits and really solidly formerly blue voting districts that over time, like, uh, you know, over the last 10, 12 years have flipped from blue to red. And so we wanted to go in and see what were the factors, like what were the reasons for that flip? And then you know, how do we start to make inroads to winning them back to blue? What kind of research have you guys embarked on so far? We've been doing polling. We've been doing uh, deep dives into voting data with like cross-referencing different economic factors. And right now we're actually doing focus groups. And so uh, we're doing those with Lake Research. And I've sat in on some of those focus groups. And across the board, 
there's just a deep, deep cynicism that both parties are screwed up. And we start to present evidence as to one way or the other as here's how somebody voted and this here's how somebody didn't vote. And you have these like sort of very calm conversations where it's like not judgmental and it's, well, did you think about this? Or, you know, what if I told you this? Would that change your mind? What if I told you this? Would that change your mind? And you see that people are like, oh, yeah, there is like a difference there. But I think they're so used to hearing that all Republicans are terrible, all Democrats are terrible, and they just want solutions. They want higher wages. They want inflation to go down. They want stability in their lives. And I think that what they see at the end of the day, because they're not deep into politics, like, you know, like we know the, the comings and goings, the changing dynamics and how hard it is to get the sausage made. The average person just sees like, well, I voted you into power and you didn't deliver. And so if you're not delivering and things are worse economically for me, then I'm going to go the other way or I'm not even going to vote because my life's not going to change no matter who's in power. And so I think that there's got to be a real effort on behalf of the Democratic Party to court working class voters in a substantive way. Like, how can we make your lives better? And, you know, particularly with 2008, with the financial crisis, a lot of these people saw that nobody faced any serious consequences. And I think because it happened under a Democratic administration, you know, where there could have been consequences for those actions, and they didn't see that relief, you know, but yet Democrats were talking about how great the economy was. It wasn't great for everybody. And for you and me, we might think, oh, well, that 2008, man, that was, you know, 14 years ago. How are people still holding on to that? For a lot of people, their lives financially only got worse and are continuing to get worse. Lost their houses, probably lost their jobs. Yeah. And, and digging into the data, you see, you know, that people had medical bankruptcies, that people had foreclosures, people lost their jobs, people lost their pensions. You know, the big factories shut down. And your town is just like a shell of what it was. It has an impact psychologically. I think that there's wounds there that need to be healed. Well, and I think also is that a lot of that stuff, to your point, is unaddressed, either substantively or even superficially. And I think then you bring in someone like a Trump who is willing to express that rage for you on your behalf. And you say, yes, yes, yes. How many times do we say, I don't know what he believes in. I don't care. But he tells those guys to F off. And that's why I love him. Yeah. And I mean, you'd see it in focus groups. People were like, he tells it like it is. He's authentic. You know, he's not sugarcoating it. And it's like people want you to shoot straight. They want you to deliver. And I think a big part of it for people in these areas is, you know, like trade deals and immigration and aid to other countries they see as like, why are we putting all this American taxpayer money into things that aren't helping the people who are already living here? With immigrants, it's like you're bringing more people in, but I can't even find a, a good paying job. And I'm not validating any of that, but I'm trying to explain some of the animus that is there in these areas. And these are very hard subjects to tackle. There's just a lot of things that I think people are really tired of. I think also, you know, it's like I've been to Iowa enough during primary campaigns where, you know, when the press corps would land, it would be sort of like, what is this magical place that we've come to? Oh, look, 
they look and talk just like we do, right? It was like always like this anthropological experiment that somehow you didn't live in the Acela Corridor somewhere in the Los Angeles basin, and somehow you were a real person too. And so I think there's this almost caricature that has been built up of exurban and rural Americans where it's hard to break through. And then to your point, if you're the Democratic Party and you have ceded so much of that territory, what are you going to tell them now? Now, on your point about like rebuilding America, Congress actually did something. The president signed an infrastructure bill. Like why the hell they're not out there all day, every day, trumpeting that as an old advanced man. You know, I spent 40 weeks on the road one year doing nothing but like building events for policy stuff like that stuff is doable. That is sort of nuts and bolts owning the White House, right? Because it is the biggest bully pulpit in the world. There are accomplishments, I think, there that they should take credit for. But I think there's also a block from a mental perspective of a lot of folks who, frankly, work for the Democratic Party and probably New York and D.C., who just like, that's not where they're from. Now, for these folks you're talking to, the, the factory town folks, the ex-urban folks, the rural folks, if there was one thing we could do to get in touch with those people, to listen, because even if they want you to do what you're supposed to do, don't come to them with a lot of promises because it's probably going to be a pretty tough sell, too. You know, there's a deep seated cynicism. And so, you know, we tested some ads that we put together. And even in circumstances where we were like presenting like votes on things or accomplishments on things, they're just wary of hearing all one side is bad and all our side is good. And so you have to really be more nuanced in your messaging because they're like, I don't want to hear it anymore. Nobody's doing anything to fix anything. They're both bad. Yeah. We hear that in the conversations and the research that we see as well. I mean, Americans are going to have a choice to make in 2022 and 2024, which is Democrats need to get their act together, need to be, you know, find a message and stick with it. I think they have those messages if they're willing to actually do the work to communicate them. Republicans are chaos agents. They don't care, right? They truly don't care. But for a lot of folks, they, you know, are willing to express a rage and engage in those culture issues that give those folks a sense of agency that maybe they otherwise don't have. And some of that will be hard to peel back, but that doesn't mean it's not worth work. You know, it's not worth the effort to try and do it. All right. Well, Lauren, I want to thank you for joining me. Before we let you go, where can our folks find you online? The best way to find me online is on Twitter, and that's at L.A. Windsor. That's at L-A-W-I-N-D-S-O-R. You can find out more about the Factory Towns Project and the Undercurrent at AmericanFamilyVoices.org. And you can support our work at AmericanFamilyVoices.org backslash donate. Well, great. And everyone, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can also find me on Instagram, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Lauren, I want to thank you for joining me again. And gang, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. 
For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.